And so with that, it's come to the time where we expound and explain the word of God. Let's look in Luke chapter two and verse 25. You can find that if you're using the Bible in the pew in front of you. You can find that on page 1019. 1019, Luke chapter two, 25 through 35. And uh, I don't have a PowerPoint today. Uh, Every now and then, especially when it's a busy week, I save the PowerPoint when I get up on Sunday morning so that I can kind of use that as a review of the sermon to make sure it's in my head. And so when I was home this morning, I realized that the PowerPoint template I've been using was not on my laptop at home. It's on my computer here uh, at my study here. And I didn't have time to rebuild it in order to get everything in. So I do apologize for the lack of PowerPoint. There are uh, a few uh, cross-references this morning. I would just invite you to write them down and, and check them out later if you can. But uh, we are looking at Luke chapter two, beginning in verse 25, where it says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting on the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What a promise. And he came in the spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother behold this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. The Old Testament law speaks on the importance of witnesses, that there is no case that is to be uh, tried or convicted or decided apart from the presence of witnesses. And the New Testament picks us up uh, several of our practices in the church that are somewhat uncomfortable, such as church discipline and, and some of these others. Uh, in fact, when you come to accuse an elder, the, the, the scriptures say that you must have two or three witnesses. And, and the, the, uh, the scriptures pick up on the importance of witnesses. And of course, we also know that that is an important idea in our own Judas, uh, jurisprudence of the day. We know how important witnesses is. In fact, witnesses oftentimes will be referred to as star witnesses if they are uh, very important to the prosecution or if they, are, if they have particular insight into a matter which is to be decided by a judge. And so the law is very clear in Deuteronomy that if it is a minor case, then it is to be tried on the basis of at least one, preferably two witnesses. And of course, if it is a capital case, one that is a matter of life and death, one witness is not enough. There must be two, at least two, uh, preferably three witnesses. 
And so it's not without accident that as Luke is explaining to Theophilus, he is, he is writing this book to help him to understand that these are the things that were clearly taught among us. And part of his purpose is to create an apologetic for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he has given us all of these stories of Jesus's infancy and yet the question is, okay, we have Mary, we have Joseph, we have uh, shepherds, we have angels, but is there anyone who can testify to the truthfulness of what Luke is saying? And so toward the end of chapter two, he provides us with two witnesses. That is the witness of Simeon and the witness of another one who is named Anna, which we will not be looking at today. We're gonna be focused primarily on Simeon this morning. We're introduced to him in verse 22. He's described uh, by his character. We know nothing about this man. We don't know where he came from. We don't know what family he's part of. Uh, Simeon is, a, is a, uh, a version of Simon. And so we know that Simon is probably a family name. We don't know how old he is. Excuse me, I said 22, I mean verse 25. We don't know how old he is, but we do know that the Bible says that he is righteous or just, and he is devout, and he is waiting on the consolation of Israel. That is another way of saying that he is waiting on the coming of the Messiah. And he is given this incredible promise told by Revelation that he would not see death. He will not taste death until the Lord's Messiah had come. Now, just hang on to that for a minute. Think about how that promise must have impacted him. Imagine you received a special revelation from the Lord that told you that you will not die, but you will be here when the Lord comes back. Can you imagine getting that promise? Can you imagine how special that must be to you? And so that's the promise that Simeon got. Simeon got this promise that says that you will not die until you see the Lord's Christ. And so he comes to the temple on this day by the Spirit. And there it is. He sees the parents of Mary and Joseph with the Christ child. And you can imagine that as I, I believe, probably by divine revelation, he sees the Christ child and he knows that this is the one and he can hardly contain his joy. He goes to the parents and it says that he blesses God and he takes the child in his arms. Now, that sounds a little weird to us, but this is actually very common and, and even to this day in, in, uh, in Eastern culture that uh, we have a friend that went to Korea uh, her husband was stationed in the military there and she was riding in the subway with her brand new baby and a lady came and just took the baby out of her arms and literally the baby was passed through the entire subway before she got off. That would not happen here. <laughs> but, uh, but that is very common in the East. Uh, it's, just a, it's just a celebration of a new life. And yet, and yet, uh, and yet uh, Simeon knows that this is not just a celebration of a new life, but this is the celebration of new life for all that is offered. He cannot contain his joy and he offers this song 
to the praise of God. And there's something important that I want you to note here is that his, it was his delight in Christ that caused and moved his worship to God. Do you see that? It was that Simeon was so delighted in Christ that his worship automatically turned to the Father. And this is how I believe all worship originates, that we delight in Christ. And through our delight in Christ, it, it moves us into worship of God. It moves us into the worship and the praise of his glory to the Father. And so one of the things that we see in this text, I believe what Luke is driving us toward and, and telling us about this story is not only apologetic, but it is also doxological. In other words, that means that it is meant to drive us to worship as we delight in the Christ child with Simeon. We are invited into this celebration. We are invited into this joy. And so we are to delight in the righteousness that Christ brings. We delight in the righteousness that he gives to us on our account. And so he's gonna show us this in two ways. We delight in Christ in his righteousness because he reconciles us and because he reveals us. He reconciles us and he reveals us. There's so much here, so much here that we're gonna have to go a little fast. I apologize, but I want you to see this text as a unit. And so looking at this and beginning in verse 29, the beginning of this song, he says, now, Lord, you are releasing your bond slave in peace. Now, the early church had a tendency to look at people that we knew very little about and begin to kind of develop legends around them. And the legend that developed around Simeon is that at this time, he was 112 years old. He had been waiting a long time. Now, I don't know about that. I doubt it. And the bottom line is, I'm not gonna take it as fact because it is a tradition. And the bottom line is that Luke does not tell us how old this man is. As far as we know, he could be 18 or 20 for that matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how old he is. What matters is that he looks upon the Christ child, takes him into his arms and says, now, God, you are releasing your bond slave in peace. What matters is not how old he was. What matters is that he had peace with God. And he goes on and says, because my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all. That's an interesting way of phrasing that salvation, that Christ, that God has prepared this salvation for us. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 10 where one of the first recorded words of Christ that we find uh, goes far back, even before John chapter one, where he says that sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book, these words, even though coming from the psalm, are attributed to the words of Christ himself. And notice what he says here. He says that he has come to do your will. 
He has come to earn the righteousness that we require. Sacrifices, burnt sacrifices, offering, they cannot supply the righteousness that we need. In the Old Testament economy, they did provide temporary atonement, but they did not provide sacrifice. And that's why they had to be repeated over and over and over and over again. Because even though they had negative forgiveness, even though they had ne- it was negatively canceled out, the sin was, it never counted for anything positive on their account. And so Jesus comes, his, his parents bring him to, to the temple. And I want you to notice, looking back at verse 22 through 24, what are they doing? They're keeping the law. When the time came for their purification, according to Moses, they brought them to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And then he goes on and says that they offered their sacrifice, which is two turtle doves or two young pigeons. In other words, it indicates that they were poor You see, Leviticus chapter 12, verse six, this is what that's taken from. And the law commands there, in fact, if you you wanna go back and look at it later, you'll notice that when, uh, when a childbirth happened, there was a period of purification that the lady went through. And then at the end of that purification, she was to take an offering and bring it to the door, bring it to the tent of meeting is how it's worded. And I want you to notice that it is very specific that this offering must be brought to the priest who stands at the gate at the tent of meeting. The reason why that's so important is because by the time of Jesus's day, they had relaxed that. And in fact, there's a tract that I found in the Talmud that says that basically you can offer this offering to any priest you want wherever you are. So they kind of took the inconvenience out of it. By the way, worship is not supposed to be convenient. Do you know that? Sometimes I think we forget that. Worship is not supposed to be convenient. It's not supposed to be. And yet, one of the signs of Israel's downfall is that they created law after law after law to increase comfort, not holiness. And when a church starts worrying more about comfort than holiness, we got a problem. We got a serious problem. And so as a result, what we find here, but as it comes back to this point though, it was relaxed in Jesus's day. And yet in this, now we don't have the tent of meeting anymore. We have the temple. And so children are meant to be presented at the temple. And yet the Jewish people had so relaxed this that most of them didn't do it anymore but we do see the parents of Jesus following the command the way it was intended to be obeyed. Do you see the sovereignty of God in this? Because where are Mary and Joseph from? Nazareth. How did they get to Jerusalem? Because under God's sovereignty, he moved them to Bethlehem. And because God was sovereign, over history, he used the decree of a pagan emperor to move the Holy Family precisely where they needed to be. You see that? Isn't God great? Here's the point. Christ's righteousness is so profound 
It is so complete that what Luke is saying here is that he is completely obedient even over the things that, humanly speaking, Christ had no control over. His righteousness in the law is absolutely complete. How many of you guys chose where you were born? Nobody? You didn't choose where you were born? Okay. How many of you chose what family you were born into? How many wish you can choose what family you were born into? (laughs) That's a different question, isn't it? Even over the things that Christ, according to, and humanly speaking, he had no control over, and yet he is absolutely righteous. He is absolutely obedient to his Father. That is the completeness of the righteousness of Christ. Even the most righteous Jew in the world had no control over where he was born, over what his parents did while he was an infant. And yet we see that being fulfilled in Christ. And as a result, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared in the presence of all people a light. Revelation to the Gentiles, we needed that. We did not have the law. We did not have the scriptures. And so Christ came as a revelation to us and also for the glory of his people, Israel. You know, it's been said, little glass half empty attitude, but it's been said that life is just a slow, continual march toward death. Again, it's kind of morbid glass half empty kind of attitude, but it's true nonetheless. Beloved, at any time, you and I are mere breaths away from death. A mere few minutes without air. Any time could come our departure. The question is, are we ready? Are we ready for that day to come? Simeon is described as a righteous and just man. That's all we know about him because it is the only thing that is relevant to Luke's narrative. And yet I want you to notice that Simeon, when he sees Christ, he welcomes him into his arms. He is waiting for the consolation of Israel. You see, Simeon understands, he knows that even though the Lord himself tells him, inspires Luke to say that he is a righteous and he is a, is a devout man, even that is still not enough. And when he sees the Christ child, he takes him in his arms and he welcomes him, he delights in him. In fact, the word here that says he takes him in his arm is not, is not the normal term that is used, it's actually a a word that Luke uses throughout the rest of his writings, both Luke and Acts, to talk about receiving Christ, to talk about welcoming Christ into your heart, to talk about welcoming Christ into your life, welcoming the teachings of Christ. And at the risk of being somewhat allegorical here, I think think Luke is using this term uh, specifically This is part of his theology that that faith is receiving Christ into our hearts, receiving his kingdom. And yet, even even though he is a righteous and just man, he must receive Christ for his delight, just like Job 
There is no other person in human history that God himself looked at Satan and said, have you considered Job? God himself called Job the most righteous man on earth. Can you imagine if he said that about you? You are the most righteous man on earth. I mean, there's so few of us that. <laughs> you know, I'm joking, right? <laughs> Some of you are going to go home. You're not going to believe what that pastor said to that day. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> but even Job, the, most, the man who is called by God himself to be the most righteous man on earth, and yet Job. Chapter nine, verse one, has to ask the question, how can a man be right with God? Even our best righteousness is not enough. Even the best things we can do is not enough. The only righteousness that makes us ready to face death and stand before God is God's own righteousness applied to us in Christ. Through the life of Christ. You could be the most righteous person in the world. What did you do when you were a baby? You don't know. But we know where Christ was when he was a baby. And we know that even as an infant, sovereignly, he is completely obedient and righteous in Christ and in himself. And so what are you gonna do that's better than that? What are you gonna do that can beat that? What about you? Whose righteousness is it that you boast in? Whose righteousness is it that you, are, that you are prideful of? Jeremiah chapter nine says, do let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. But anyone who boasts, let them boast in this, that they know Yahweh, that they know the Lord. And that is the only means by which we can boast is that we know Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so we delight in him. How is delight expressed? By boasting, by boasting. My, all of my kids had music concerts this week and man, I was doing a lot of boasting online because I was delighting in my children. Love it in the same way, when you delight in something, you boast them. You boast in it. Do we delight in Christ or do we delight in ourselves? Do we delight in ourselves? So we delight in because his righteousness reconciles us to him, but because his righteousness reveals us, reveals us. Simeon takes a turn here. And he moves from singing this song to God to talking to the parents. Now, every parent loves to hear nice things said about their kids, right? I mean, you do. That's just a, that's just a parent thing. Uh, <clears throat> some of you guys all the time walk up to me and say, man, your kids are, are doing this, doing this, they're doing great. And I'm just sitting here going, uh-huh. <laughs> My kids, uh-huh. <laughs> Every parent loves, but, but when the parents of Christ are hearing this, you can only imagine how they must be feeling. They're marvel. They're amazed by it. 
that like all Christians, there's going to be both joy and hardship in their parentage of Christ. Like all Christians, there's going to be joy and hardship in this journey that they're going to take. And so Simeon encourages them in verse uh, 34. He blesses them, but then he says specifically to marry his mother. Now, this is probably coming from Mary's own recollections, which is why she remembers this so well. Mary, his mother, he says to her, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And yes, a sword will be driven through your heart as well. This is incredibly important. Don't just read past that because it goes back to an incredibly important sermon of Isaiah. It's a sermon we all know, and I'm gonna ask you to turn there to Isaiah chapter eight. Isaiah chapter eight. Just a little bit of context here. Isaiah is preaching to a wicked king of Judah, Ahaz. Ahaz is facing a army that is coming against him to try to force him out of his throne so that Judah will join the fight against Assyria. Isaiah, in chapter seven, comes to Ahaz and says, trust God. And Ahaz says, no. And you see, it's his own arrogance and his sin that causes the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, to go a different direction. Because in this situation, even though he is facing this great army, Ahaz's, the king's sin and his own pride and his own arrogance is a bigger threat to the nation than the army that is coming against them. And so this prophecy takes a different direction. And God prophesies that there is going to be an ultimate deliverance, not from this army, but from the sin that threatens them even greater. And he is continuing on in that prophecy. And of course, we all know Isaiah seven fourteen, right? That it is a child that will be born to a virgin whose name will be called Emmanuel. We all know that prophecy. But the sermon goes all the way through chapter 12. And as you look in chapter eight, you find that Yahweh is going to bring this deliverance, but when he brings it, when it comes, when this child is born, the nation is gonna be decimated because of Ahaz's unbelief. That nation is gonna be decimated, and as a result, Assyria is going to turn against this nation, is gonna turn against Judah and the, and the nation itself is gonna be driven to ashes. And the people are gonna be in total destitution. And Isaiah says in verse, 13, in verse 13 of chapter eight, he says, but Yahweh of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And verse 14, and he will become a sanctuary for those who fear Yahweh but he will also be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to those who trust in human means, those who trust in other modes of deliverance. 
And so Simeon continues here. He says that this child is given for the rise and falling of many in Israel. And notice he goes on and specifically calls him a sign of opposition, a sign to be opposed. Remember, behold, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and his name will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And so what Luke is doing, what Simeon is doing is he's recalling this entire sermon and he understands that, the, that, that this child that is coming, this deliverance that is coming is gonna result in the fall of many because he will be a rock of offense, but it will also result in the rise of many because they will put their trust in Yahweh's deliverance. Do you see that? You understand what Simeon is doing here? And so as a result, everywhere Jesus went, Jesus preached. Everywhere Jesus is preached, he garners opposition. He garners people who are against him. It's no different today. The popular, the popular um, philosopher, German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, regarded Christ as a curse on the human race because he spared the weak. Happy guy. And this is how when Christ reveals that opposition, when that sign that comes for opposition, that is what reveals the thoughts of the hearts of many, according to Simeon's prediction. You see, the cross reveals our true nature. The cross, as we see Christ there dying, beaten, ridiculed, mocked, merciless shame placed upon him, we understand that he became our sin in order that we might become his righteousness. And when we see Christ dying on the cross, we see our sin in full view. We see who we are. We cannot come to God unless we come through the cross. We cannot come to God the Father unless we come through Christ crucified. It is that opposition of Christ that reveals our hearts and convinces us that we are sinners and we need the forgiveness and righteousness of Christ placed on our account. It's that opposition to him. We cannot come to God 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the preaching of the cross will always be foolishness to the world. Always. We do not need to work very hard to get the world's approval because we will never have it. The world hates the message of the cross. Even those churches that have given in to try to appease the world the first thing they let go of is the gospel. That is not an accident. That is, that is exactly what happens every time. But to the ones who are being saved, beloved, the cross is both the wisdom of God and the power of God for our salvation. Can I remind you? It was not the rough crowd that put Jesus on the cross. It was the elite of society. 
It was the religious leaders. It was the one that everyone looked to for their knowledge of the law and their religious guidance. And yet they are the ones who put Jesus on the cross, not the tax collectors, not the sinners, not the outcast of society. It was the best. And so beloved, which one do we fall under? Are we willing to become the outcast so that we may come to Christ as his beloved chosen? Are we willing to be lost in order that Christ can save us? Are we willing to admit our sin and the depths of our depravity in order to acknowledge that Christ is our only hope and to cry out for him for mercy? This is not an easy process. This is not easy. In fact, Simeon says something to Mary that's very enigmatic. There's a lot of controversy, a lot of debate over what he means. He tells Mary that a sword is gonna drive through your own soul. For Mary, as she watched her beloved son dying on the cross, it was a sword, felt like a sword going through her own heart. And at the risk of being, again, a little allegorical here, but I imagine that looking at Christ on the cross and recognizing that he is dying for our sin, that should pierce us like a sword as well. That should break us. Churchianity will make you feel pretty good about yourself. It'll make you stand tall, stand proud. It'll make you loud. Quite frankly, it'll make you a little obnoxious. Churchianity will do that. Christianity, true biblical Christianity, will drive you to your knees, lifting up your arms and worshiping a gracious, wonderful, amazing, magnificent Savior. We see that suffering Christ at first so grotesque, so horrible, and yet it holds a wondrous attraction for us to know that Christ took our ugliness and he replaced it with his beauty. So beloved, where do we stand this morning? Beloved, what is it that we love more? What holds the central place in our hearts this season or any season? What is it that brings us back time and time again to this place to worship God? Whatever it is that we hold dear in our lives, beloved, Christ is better Christ is center. And that's why I love the Advent candle. Because we see here that as we can't, these candles burn, they go further and further down. And as we light the center candle, the Christ candle, 
the effect is that everything else moves down so that Christ is lifted up. That's why we use an Advent candle here. It's because we want that image this season that, that may everything else shrink so that Christ may be exalted, that he may be center and remind us throughout the rest of the year that it is Christ's righteousness that saves us and not anything that we offer on our own. Not anything. And so, beloved, what are you, what are you, what are you delighting in this morning? Do you know that Christ is better? Whatever it is, do you know that Christ is beautiful? Why is that so important? Because the only way to replace a love in your life, the only way to correct love in your life is to replace it with a love for something greater. I loved my PlayStation 3 until the 4 came out. It's just better. Now the 5 is out, I won't even look at that because I know I want it. Beloved, Christ is better. He's not just the PlayStation 5. He's the PlayStation Infinity. He's better, infinitely better. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Are you experiencing that? Are you living in that? I pray that you are. Delight in Christ. Father, we thank you for these reminders that Simeon sung so many years ago. I pray that each and every one of us are keeping Christ central not just during this season, but Lord, every season, every hour, every moment. We truly need you every hour. And Father, I pray that we will make a regular habit of reflecting on your work, reflecting on your word, reflecting on the truths of who you are, and just with our spiritual eyes, making time every day to see Christ. And to know that we are his and he is ours. Oh, Jesus, lover of our souls, how you have loved us. How you have accepted us. How you have rescued us. So may we return in love. We love you because you loved us first. You called us when we were still sinners. You died for us while we were still sinners. There was nothing in us that you saw as lovely. But now you have given us your own loveliness so that when God looks upon us, he sees the loveliness of his own begotten son. So may the world see that in us as well. And may we be reminded who we are in you. Let's stand together and let's sing this song together. Only trust in you.